Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, joining you again through the magic of technology from my secure underground bunker located in the heart of Coronado, California. My good friend and co-host, Eb Wilkinson, is back on assignment again today. He will return with us next Saturday. Thanks to all of you for tuning in today. I'm so happy you've joined us for a special Flag Day edition of Inside Track. And just a few words about Flag Day. Flag Day is celebrated on June 14. That's this Monday. And it does not get enough attention these days, I think. The adoption of the flag of the United States on June 14, 1777, was made by resolution of the Second Continental Congress. The flag resolution simply stated, resolved that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field representing the new constellation. Interestingly, the United States Army also celebrates the U.S. Army birthday on this same date also. In 1916, President Woodrow Wilson issued a proclamation that that formally established June 14 as Flag Day, and on August 3, 1949, National Flag Day was established by an act of Congress. By the way, one of the last good Democrats, Harry Truman, was president at that time. In 1893, this is kind of interesting trivia, Elizabeth Duane Gillespie, a descendant of Benjamin Franklin, and president of the Colonial Dames of Pennsylvania attempted to have a resolution passed requiring the American flag be displayed on all of Philadelphia's public buildings. And in 1937, Pennsylvania became the first state to make Flag Day a legal holiday. Now, America is not the only country to celebrate its flag. 57 countries around the world also celebrate their own version of Flag Day. Despite what we hear from some detractors, Our nation's flag has been a symbol of freedom. No country has ever stood for freedom and liberty like ours, and no country has defended the freedom of men around the world like the United States of America. Now, it may be corny in these days to say this, but God bless the United States of America and its flag that stands as a symbol for our great republic. We welcome your calls at the Imus Wilkinson hotline today, 790-2040. The show is better with your participation. Now, I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. In just a moment after our first break, we'll chat with Paris Denard from the Republican National Committee. And in the second half of the show, my friend and former ambassador to the, to the Kingdom of Thailand, the Honorable Michael G. DeSombre, will join us to discuss his recent opinion piece, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal, on the refusal of the Biden administration to provide any vaccinations for the nearly 9 million Americans who live and work abroad. This portion of Inside Track is brought to you by my co-host, the absent Eb Wilkinson, and his partner Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby step approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on Socialist Security. Call Ebb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Before we go to the break, a few news updates. The Phoenix Suns convincingly defeated the Nuggets 
last night to take a 3-0 to zero lead in the best-of-seven semifinal series and look to close out their series if possible in Denver or get the Western Division title when they return to Phoenix next week. I'm still not an NBA fan, but as Al McCoy would say, here come the Suns. Also, congratulations and best of luck to the U of A men's baseball team. They defeated Old Miss last night 9-3 to and are one game away from a possible trip to Omaha to the College World Series. Game two is tonight at High Corbett Field. Let's all be rooting for the Cats. Now, in more important news, the big story here in Arizona is the heat. It's hot, 110 degrees hot, hotter later this week. Stay home and listen to Inside Track, as well as my friends, BBG, who just got off uh, the line, uh, Charles Heller and Christy Simone on KVOI. Keep hydrated, you hear? Nationally, Representative Elon Omar is at it again. The latest episode began on Monday when the Democrat wrote on Twitter about a virtual exchange she had with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. In the actual exchange, Ms. Omar pressed for an investigation of human rights abuses both by Israel's security forces and by Hamas. But on Twitter, she compared Israel and the United States to the Taliban. Nancy Pelosi did not condemn her attacks. In fact, she sort of excused them, saying that there were some language differences. However, RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel made the following statement. Democrat Representative Elon Omar's recent comments equating the U.S. and Israel with internationally recognized terrorist organizations like the Taliban and Hamas is just the latest example of her anti-Semitic and anti-American rhetoric. Remarkably, Ms. McDaniel said, Nancy Pelosi has awarded Omar with a spot on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Democrats must hold Omar accountable for her inflammatory remarks and stand with Jewish Americans facing a rise of anti-Semitism. In Randolph, New Jersey, the local school board there, and there's a quite a considerable Jewish population in that uh, school district, stripped out the names of all school holidays this past week, including the Jewish holidays and the most important holidays on the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, now referring to them as day off so as not to offend anyone. Really? Well, this is equally offensive to everyone that we know, and to me as well. Here in Tucson, another anti-Semitic attack on a synagogue. Tucson police expect to make an arrest soon in the latest hate crime incident against a synagogue in the past 30 days here in Tucson. Jews and non-Jews in Tucson throughout the state, nationally and even internationally, have condemned this criminal act. In other news, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has announced the possibility of his state taking on completing the border security fence, which the current administration scuttled earlier this year. Expect lawsuits from the White House to prevent Texas from protecting her citizens. In Israel, Daftali Bennett is expected to achieve a final resolution on forming a new government there and ending the tenure of longtime Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. G7 talks underway in England. Joe Biden and G7 members attempted to wipe clean all Trump policies and influence. Joe Biden will meet with Vladimir Putin later this week in Vienna. More to follow on next week's show. And lastly, with new cases and deaths from the Chinese virus at a 15-month low, and just when everyone there thought emergency powers in California were going to be finally lifted, Governor Gruesome Newsom 
announced he has no plans to end his emergency powers. Why? Because in Sacramento, it's good to be the king. But it's not too good for the citizens of the nation's most populous state. When will California's state of emergency stop being an emergency? Asked the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times. The Times notes, California's Emergency Services Act doesn't detail when an emergency declaration should be made or terminated. The governor cravenly using emergency powers to incentivize low IQ voters, and there's plenty of them in California, to vote to help Newsom avoid recall. This is very, very sick politics. Okay, Mr. Producer, let's take our first break. When we return, RNC spokesman Paris Denard joins us. Joins us. Stay tuned. We'll be back after messages from our sponsors. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Hey, welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by our friends, Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Everyone can find something for the home or ranch at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus at super low prices. Don't go to the big box store. Check out Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and see what Jamie and her crew of conservationists have to offer. Visit them in the 700 block of East 36th Street. And hey, when you visit Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus, ask Jamie about her chickens and maybe even pick up a couple dozen eggs while you're there. And with summer temps going upward and upward, more desert critters and pests will be attacking our homes. Call 886-3029 and let Eric Rudin and his great team at Essential Pest Control protect your home or business. Insiders, these are two great locally owned family-run businesses you can depend upon. Eb and I do. So should you. Okay, on to our first guest, RNC spokesman Paris Denard. Thanks for joining us, Paris. 
Um, hey, Paris, uh, you're sort of a local having grown up in Phoenix and graduated from, Pro- from Brophy Prep. Is that right? That is right. Yes, I am a local. Family is still there. I've uh, been in Phoenix over 50 years. So, Paris, you went off to Pepperdine. Why did you want to come to the Harvard of the West here in Tucson and become an Arizona Wildcat? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have I, I, I looked at Pepperdine and the, the ocean views are really hard to beat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, the Pacific Ocean or Cactus, Sabino Canyon or, or the Great Pacific. I don't know. You, you probably made a good choice. Hey, when you worked at the White House uh, Office of Legislative Affairs, did you work with Sarah Taylor over there? So when I was first uh, in political affairs, uh, Sarah Taylor was the uh, political director at the White House at the time. And when I was at the RNC, the intern for the internship the summer before I went to the White House, and I was at the White House from 2005 until the very end of the second term of the Bush administration, Blaze Hazelwood uh, was my boss, and she's a native Arizonian as well. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah there's a great... Uh... A great uh, relationship between Blaze and Arizona. I know Blaze very well, and actually, I met Sarah once um, at the OM, at the offices of the old executive. Um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about running for Congress. Thank God, um, I didn't. <laughs> uh, the 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 uh, if I had run, the pair of uh, Bush uh, presidential cufflinks she gave me would have been the most expensive <laughs> pair of cufflinks in the history of uh, of the universe. <laughs> Anyway, hey, is it fair to say that while you're working uh, now overtime talking about the Biden administration, the current president and vice president has given you plenty of chances to contradict and actually has made your job easier? Well, they really have, uh, Bruce. And, you know, first of all, I just want to say thank you for your leadership for so many years and and being a, a great leader in our party. But I will say that this administration has, in fact, given me a lot of opportunities to highlight the contrast. Uh, between uh, the previous administration and when Republicans uh, have been in leadership positions, not just in Congress, but at the local level, like with our Republican governors, like Governor Ducey and Governor DeSantis and Governor Nome and uh, Governor Abbott and, and, and so forth and so on. And so this Biden administration has been so bad, so quick in, the, in terms of only being there you know, about six months or so. It's really amazing to see how far they've been in terms of their failed leadership and the impact it's had on literally every single American. And so, yes, I've been quite busy uh, because of their uh, bad policy. You know, in May, just over 180,000 uh, immigrants were apprehended trying to cross the border. It's a 200% increase from the average May apprehensions during the Trump administration. It's a 674% increase over May 2020. But probably, Paris, wouldn't you say the the most tragic part of those statistics is 14,000, nearly 160 unaccompanied children were apprehended. This is just, this is an awful kind of a, a situation to be in, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's, a, it's an awful situation uh, for us to be in as a nation uh, because it is completely avoidable. Uh, this crisis that we have on our southern border, and I know that your, a lot of your listeners know firsthand the impact of illegal immigration, but this crisis could have been avoided. The Biden administration came in and sought to undo the, the, the policies that the Trump administration was with congressional Republicans put in place to keep our country safer, to actually build a wall, a complete wall, and to have policies like the stay in Mexico policy and works with Mexico to curb 
that illegal immigration and not have it be a magnet to get here because people knew under the Trump administration, do not the, the border was closed for illegal activity. And if you did get here, you'd be sent back and you wouldn't have be you wouldn't be receiving benefits and rewards and incentives and resources when you got here for breaking the law. And so when you look at the facts that the numbers that you just pointed out, it's clear that we have a humanitarian crisis. It's clear we have a national security crisis because we have people on the terrorist watch list coming over here. And it's clear that we have a, an economic crisis because of the negative impact that uh, illegal immigration has on uh, the men and women who are looking for jobs and employment uh, and small businesses going towards illegal hiring rather than hiring of Americans. So we have a problem here that the Biden administration is choosing to avoid and not fully address. And ultimately, it's something that they created. Hmm. You know, um, former U.S. ambassador to uh, Mexico, Chris Landau, who was a Trump appointee, was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. Paris, and, and he mm-hmm. talked about, from his perspective, the real success of the Stay in Mexico program and how since it has uh, been uh, ended, uh, you know, all of the, there's what, uh, 180,000 uh, immigrants, uh, excuse me, let me take that back. Yeah, it's 180,000 immigrants have come uh, just in the last, uh, excuse me, I, I, I beg your pardon, you should never have to do math on the air, but 700 11,784 immigrants through the end of May have tried to enter this country. Now, having that stay in Mexico, where, where there actually were Mexican troops enforcing on that side, right. and, and those threats against governments who continue to allow you know, the illegal immigration uh, crossings here in this country, those things, that policy really did work, didn't it? You know, Bruce, it did work. And the other thing to remember is that Vice President Kamala Harris said just recently while she was in, I believe, Guatemala, that there would, no be, there would not be an immediate result. Or wouldn't be, you wouldn't see any immediate or quick return uh, on this crisis at the border. And that's just not true, because if they did things like the stay in Mexico policy, like the last administration did, they would have seen uh, immediate results immediate return on the investment the American people made in trying to have stronger and safer border security. And so the idea that it's impossible to have a quick result is just not true because we saw that result uh, in, a, in, a, in a fast amount of time under the previous administration. The other thing that it takes, it takes leadership. This, these are tough decisions that you have to make. Uh, and, and that's why we elect leaders, to make the tough decisions. And the Congress has not been doing it under Democrat control. And in this administration under Biden and Harris certainly aren't doing it because there's examples that were made, case studies that were provided that would show the path forward. And instead of taking the path forward to more security, safer communities, and curbing illegal immigration, they've taken us the, 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 taken us backwards. And Paris, uh, Vice President Harris falsely claimed, "quote We've been to the border," unquote. And when a reporter called her out, she compared going to the border like going to Europe. She laughed. She says, I don't understand the point that you're making. I mean, anybody listening to her and everybody who's watched over the past several weeks where she has not gone to the border and she claims that she's uh, enforcing or she's leading this uh, commission by the president by Zoom. I, I mean, talk about those children you know, who right now are, are unattended, you know, unaccompanied uh, youngsters in this country without their parents. Uh, this is this is tragedy. It's a human tragedy. Parents, if I, if I can just go on to another thing that, that we're seeing more and more every week, 
uh, and that is consumer price index surged 5% in May, the largest spike in 13 years. Uh, wow. All of this uh, free money and all the, the, the trillions of dollars that's being uh, spent and the dollars being created by fiat, this is, this is coming back to roost for all Americans, isn't it? Well, it really is, Bruce. And, and the fact of the matter is that the Biden administration said that there wasn't going to be uh, a tax increase. And, uh, and a lot of people said, OK, there won't be he's not going to raise our taxes. But when you see this inflation, uh, the, the number of the five percent increase that you talked about last month, but also when you look at the gas, the, the cost of gasoline going up, when you look at the 56 percent cost, 56 percent. You're right. And you look at the food inflation, the price of groceries and and things of that nature, uh, lumber. If you're trying to build a home or, or in that in that industry, everything is up, up, up. That is a tax on Americans because you're paying more and the dollar's less. And so we've got to call them out on it and say, what is the policy? What are you doing to have economic policies that are putting Americans first, small businesses first, and not hurting us? Because there's no end, econo- economists have said there's no end in sight uh, when it comes to this inflation. And so when you add the inflation on top of the jobs crisis that we're in, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said we're in a jobs crisis, because of the federal government incentivizing people to stay home because of the benefit that's placed on top of the unemployment um, uh, uh, dispersed amount of money that they're giving to people, it creates this, this, this perfect storm for economic catastrophe for the American people at a time when we need to have the American people growing and, and having businesses open and having schools open. So altogether, it just reinforces what you said at the start of all of the bad policies that this administration is implementing that is actually hurting the American people. So I guess part of the answer here is going to lie on the budget uh, that has right. been proposed by the president, $6 trillion, and, and that doesn't include some of the other uh, off, offline um, uh, programs that he suggested. Um, how realistic is it to expect Republican leadership in the Senate to hold firm, and and how many friends does the Republican Party have in the Senate uh, to avoid uh, this kind of a budget increase? Well, you know, the budget is a problem. I think one thing that I like to point out about the budget is the fact that the the Biden administration actually uh, called for reducing funding for Customs and Border Patrol in their proposed budget, which is a ridiculous thing when you have a border crisis. But that putting that aside, when you look at the cost of all the things that they have, there's even Democrats who are concerned about it. Obviously, you know, uh, uh, people like Joe Manchin, a Democrat of West Virginia, have serious concerns about the cost of some of these things that they're proposing. And I think that Republicans have a couple of members on the Democrat side who have been out, more outspoken about their uh, concerns about this uh, overreach in terms of government spending. But I think when you look at the Senate having a 50-50 split, you have a couple of senators who've already spoken out on it. And I think there's a lot more that are privately concerned about it and hoping for some type of a compromise, because I think if they have the compromise, that will have a lower dollar amount to it that is more feasible and that is actually focusing on actual infrastructure. Uh, because we know, I think if any of your listeners would, would, would say, do you think that uh, we should have investments in infrastructure for roads and bridges and waterways and ports of entry and you know, freeways and the broadband, they'd say yes because they see the need in their communities. But if you ask them, um, do you think that all $2 trillion is going towards that, they'd probably say yes. But the fact of the matter is it's not. 
only about six to seven percent of that budget proposals act for infrastructure is actually going to traditional infrastructure. And that's the problem. That's why Republicans are trying to get to a deal. And we just recently saw Joe Biden actually dismiss us, uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capital and say no thanks when it came to the deal they tried to make in terms of getting the compromise. He was unwilling to compromise. And so now they're trying to go with a more uh, a different set of, uh, of, of leaders on both sides to try to get something done. I don't think that the Biden administration really wants to compromise. And I don't think they really want to have unity. And I really don't think they want to have bipartisanship. But I know Republicans are eagerly hopeful and optimistic about uh, having something done for the American people and putting them first in a responsible manner that doesn't waste the taxpayers' money. Well, as I said, when we started our interview just a few minutes ago, Paris, and, and the time has flown by, we're almost at the end yeah. of our time. Um, you, you've got plenty of opportunities here to, to show the contradictions. And uh, just in the final seconds we have, uh, the contradiction between the Trump administration and the new Biden administration on the uh, uh, Iran nuclear deal, uh, going to a, an Iran nuclear deal 2.0, um, with uh, the uh, Iranians selling uh, satellite technology um, uh, on on the ability to to intercept missiles, intercept jet fighters, and so on, um, this is. I mean, we're looking at potentially, and you know, they've they've said Joe Biden has has not made one uh, national security decision in the last fifty years. This getting back into the nuclear deal, this is a disaster, wouldn't you say? I would say so, and I think I, I thank you for bringing up uh, international affairs because it's something that's not getting a lot of attention these days because of the domestic issues. But listen, you're right. Whether it's getting us back in these bad trade deals, or if it's the Iran nuclear deal, or it's the Paris Climate Accord, or if it's the increase in high and in in, in in these ransomware cyber attacks on American right. businesses and major industries like food and gasoline pipelines. We have a problem because there's a there's a feckless leadership that we have in this Biden administration, and what we need to do is is hold them accountable and look at these deals that they're making because you're right. When you look at the fact that the Saran nuclear deal might be creating more problems for the American people, and you saw how the president already was putting the Russian pipelines first with that NORAD deal and, and trying to yep. shut down the Keystone, Keystone and, and Governor Whitmer closing down, trying to close down another pipeline, we have to ask ourselves, are we going to be better served under Democrat leadership or Republican leadership, like we have with Trump and the congressional Republicans. And I think more and more Americans are going to turn to the Republican Party and give us a first look or sometimes a second look because of the, the, the leadership that they see that we have, they had and the, failure, the failures that they see currently. And so I think we have a great opportunity to continue to highlight the contrast, point out the facts, and hold them accountable. Well, Paris, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us. I hope you'll come back soon. You you really do have the ability to kind of set things into perspective. And unfortunately, I'm sure there's going to be plenty more to discuss from this train wreck administration. So uh, thanks very much. And uh, we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. Producer Tom, let's go to our bottom of the hour break. When we return, former ambassador to the Kingdom of Thailand, Michael DeSombre, will join us. You're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. 
So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce is here virtually. Eb's still on assignment. And producer Tom is on the board running the show today. God help us. Before we get to our next guest, just kidding, uh, Tom. Uh, before we get to, he'll shut the whole damn show down if I'm, if I'm not uh, uh, square with him. Uh, before we get to our next guest, Ambassador Michael DeSombre, do you have a home improvement project you want to get going, but you're worried if you can afford the luxury you deserve? Corazon Cabinet sells top quality cabinets by J&K, Legacy, and Conestoga. Visit the Corazon crew at their new showroom located at 4700 South Park. Meet Joy and Allie to see their fabulous collection and let them plan the kitchen or bath of your dreams. I've been telling you about the great price Janie and I got on our new cabinet order. We just placed for our new home, Corazon Cabinets has created a beautiful server for our dining room that is like a custom piece of furniture, and it is gorgeous. Joy and Allie are design pros called Corazon Cabinets, 488-2266, and get to work on beautifying your home in 2021, just like Eb, Tammy, and I have done. Corazon Cabinets, luxury you can afford. I am pleased to welcome our special guest today, the 43rd U.S. Ambassador to the Kingdom of of Thailand, Michael DeSombre. Um, hey, Michael, before we get to, and, and welcome, uh, Michael. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you, Bruce. Very happy to be here. Great. Before we get to business, I did some research on some of your predecessors and found our first governor of Arizona, George W.P. Hunt, they used to call him the old walrus, served as U.S. ambassador to Siam at that time, from uh, 1920 until 1921. And what I also found is he got posted there to get him the heck out of Arizona so as to avoid his run for, for U.S. Senate. 
And with President Wilson's help, he got sent to Siam as far away as possible from Arizona. Did you know that? I knew we had a very illustrious group of special representatives. Uh, the, the embassy was only created after World War II, but from the late 1800s through, uh, through World War II, there was a lot of interesting, uh, interesting special represent- representatives there that actually really paved the way for the American relationship. It was critical to the relationship. Yeah. So you didn't get sent to Thailand, I don't think, to get you out of the USA. Uh, in fact, A, it took some effort to get your appointment confirmed, and B, you were very well qualified to serve there, having a degree from Stanford and, and East Asian Studies. You spent many years with a large law firm in Hong Kong advising various clients in East Asia. Plus, you speak Mandarin, Japanese, and Korean. Tell us about your background and how you became our man in Bangkok. Sure, yes. I, I was indeed living outside of the U.S., so they didn't have to uh, remove me from the U.S. to get me there. I had to come <laughs> back there for the, the confirmation process and everything else. Um, I mean, my interest has always been in foreign policy and strategic relations. As you indicated, I got a master's degree from Stanford focused on, on Chinese military back in the late 80s and uh, have always been interested in strategic aspects of American foreign policy in Asia. Unfortunately, I needed to support my family and do other things for the last uh, 25 years, so it, it took me a while to get my path into government service, but was very happy I was eventually able to do so and, and really very pleased and honored to have been able to serve my country. As so many of our friends who, who eventually were posted uh, in various uh, capitals around the world, uh, it was not easy uh, for you to get through the confirmation process, but the final vote was, was fairly compelling, wasn't it? Yeah, my final confirmation vote was 91 to 7. It was pretty much the only ones that voted against me were the Democrats running for president at that point in time. <laughs> now, now, you supported Donald Trump in 2016, but in addition to many charitable causes uh, that you and your wife uh, have been involved in for years, in 2013, you also helped found Republicans overseas, which is uh, which was developed to help nearly 9 million Americans living abroad, didn't you? That's correct. Uh, it's a, a very important uh, group of people that is very underrepresented in U.S. politics. Uh, unfortunately, being that Americans vote by state and Americans overseas are, are a disparate combination of people from various states, they're the representation is a little bit difficult, and so you know, we formed that organization to really try to give a voice to Americans overseas, particularly with regard to some of the challenging tax issues uh, that, uh, that present themselves to Americans overseas. Some of your listeners may not know, but the United States is one of the few countries around the world that taxes its citizens on their global income regardless of where they reside. So I was living in Hong Kong for the last 20 years but paid U.S. taxes the same as if I had been living in the United States. And then in the last few years, the uh, last seven years or eight years, the U.S. government has imposed something called the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which essentially turns every foreign bank into the arm of the IRS to report income on Americans overseas, which is much more onerous than any Americans in the U.S. have. So we're trying to convince people of, of the detriment of that law. Uh, unfortunately, we have yet to succeed to get that changed, but uh, the detriments nonetheless exist. Yeah, and, and uh, you, you testified, I think you were part of a commission, you testified uh, regarding uh, FATCA, 
And unfortunately, FATCA is still a reality in the Department of Treasury. Um, you know, still imposes these these uh, requirements on Americans living abroad. These nine million, nearly nine million Americans that live abroad, Michael, I think they would constitute like the twelfth largest state uh, in the union. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly correct. And people, you know, if all nine million of them voted, even if they voted in the various states, that would generally swing a lot of the elections because. As we know from recent elections, they're won and lost uh, by a few hundred thousand across a few different states. So it actually can be quite powerful in, in the national level elections. Um, so we had an ambassador colleague of yours, uh, Chris Landau, on the show twice so far uh, since he left government service. And we learned how he worked to represent U.S. interests in Mexico. And he was a very visible representative of our country. Um, and I think you said as a part of your testimony that your office will primarily encourage the economic partnership between the two countries with focus on American investment and Thailand's infrastructure projects and supply chains. That, I think that was uh, part, of your, uh, part of your testimony? No, that's indeed correct. There were really two main focuses of, of my time. Uh, the first was the economic partnership, really strengthening the economic partnership with Thailand, which quite honestly had, had withered a little bit on the vine, uh, although it had not withered as badly as the strategic relationship, which is a very long and deep relationship of over 100 years of very close cooperation. And unfortunately, after the 2014 coup in Thailand, the Obama administration essentially uh, gave Thailand kind of the Heisman and pushed them away and, and essentially pushed them much closer to China. And so much of what I was doing on the strategic side was really trying to re-energize that relationship and, and really balance it out and make sure that, that Thailand realizes that America is the better friend that it has. Michael, we're having some problems with reception on your, on your, on your line, I think. Um, if you can, try to get to, to a window or someplace where we might be able to hear you better. I know you're out in the woods right now. <laughs> I apologize. Yes, uh, it's also very windy outside. So if I were to go outside, it would be even worse. So uh, hopefully oh, it's okay. Well, there, there, there you go. So, so you did have some time prior to COVID to really um, to, to develop the kind of relationships that you talked about, didn't you? And, and were really quite visible yourself in Thailand working uh, with many, both American as well as uh, Thai uh, companies to, as you said, the, in, in the interest of American business to develop supply chains and so on. Um, how do you look back at that work, your, your level of success and, and maybe some of your frustrations as well? I was really very happy that I was able to get a lot of access success and really help push Thailand to reform its economic regulation as well in a way that is favorable for free markets. And my message to the Thai government always was Americans don't need any special treatment. We just need to have an open and free playing field, an open marketplace, and American companies will succeed. And so I spent a fair amount of 2020 putting together various economic proposals, reform proposals to the Thai government, explaining, you know, if you do these things, you'll get more investment. And those are now all in the process of being implemented in many respects in Thailand. So I, I was very pleased to be able to do that. And one of the reasons I was able to do that was in 2020, you know, Thailand had really very little COVID, although in February and March, it was one of the first places where COVID arrived outside of China. 
it ultimately was stamped out quite quickly. And then for the vast majority of 2020, there essentially was zero COVID in Thailand. Unfortunately, yeah. that did not last forever. And then in January of 2021, we got what they're referred to as their third wave, which is really the first real wave that has been washing over Thailand. And so things have been much more difficult in 2021. But in 2020, during that period of time, we were able to really have very full and active engagement even more than normal because nobody was traveling outside of Thailand. So all of the business leaders, all of the government leaders, everybody was there, and I was able to engage with them very significantly. So it was a really good good opportunity. So you recently wrote a Wall Street Journal opinion piece with former U.S. Senator and uh, Ambassador to New Zealand and Samoa, uh, Scott Brown, about the Biden administration policy not to protect Americans abroad from the COVID virus with vaccines that have been developed in America. Now, isn't it the responsibility of the U.S. government to protect its nationals who are living abroad, especially, you think, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic? Yeah, Bruce, that's that's the really interesting point. Uh, don't realize is before one becomes an ambassador, actually is an ambassador school that they send you to for uh, three weeks, whether you're a political appointee or a, a career foreign service officer. And one of the things we learned in that, that school that was drilled into our head time and time again was the top priority for any ambassador is the safety and well-being of the American in that country. That's sort of the stock answer. Like, what's your top priority? My top priority is the safety and well-being of American citizens. Uh, but nonetheless, in this circumstance, in the middle of a global pandemic, the Biden administration has decided that they will not be providing you know, vaccines to Americans overseas. And it was perfectly the right decision to first focus on vaccinating America and people in America so we could get to herd immunity, so we could get to the independence that we now are all seeing here, which is a stark contrast to what is the case currently in Asia particularly. But now that we've achieved that in the United States, we really should be protecting the Americans overseas. Americans overseas request and demand very little of their government. They are subject to global taxation, but you know, they don't get that many benefits. It really behooves the American government to protect Americans overseas, and nobody's going to feel bad about us doing that. And, and, you know, I think it's fair to make the point, uh, Michael, that the, the overwhelming majority of Americans who are living and working abroad are not such a, a bunch of fat cats. They're not pulling down seven-figure salaries. Many of them are pensioners and retirees. Many of the majority of them, the overwhelming majority, are teachers and 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 managers and and people who are kind of at you know mostly middle-level kind of managers in various businesses, both foreign as as well as domestic uh, companies that are doing business outside the country. I mean, this is an awful sort of a uh, of an imposition. Uh, to make on people who otherwise don't have the sort of resources to be coming back and forth to America, and if you could even get back and forth uh, to America for your vaccinations, right? No, Bruce, that's exactly right. And Thailand is really, you know, exactly that situation. You have a large number of retirees. You have a large number of veterans and veteran retirees in Thailand as well. You know, I I flew back to America to get vaccinated literally a week ago because I could do that. But as you say, most people can't, you know, it, particularly in Asia, all these countries have two to three week quarantines. And so even if you fly back, then if you want to go back to where you're living, you have to pay for a hotel for three weeks, which can typically be close to your know, $500, $1,000 a night, you know, to be able to go through these state run or, or approved quarantine systems. So 
it's really difficult for them. And a lot of these countries have not been doing a very rapid rollout of vaccination. And so as we're getting to feel very free and, and you know, past COVID here in America, that's just not the case in, in Thailand, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, in Korea, in Japan, in Australia, in New Zealand. A lot of these places that even they may not have much COVID anymore or maybe have a lot of COVID, but they don't have a vaccine. Most people are less than 10 percent vaccinated. Most of those countries are less than 10 percent, 10 percent vaccinated. Yeah, I think the overall average is something like 6%. And, and heck, uh, up until I think just in the last couple of weeks, Canada, our, our neighbor to the north, hasn't been vaccinating anybody. Uh, and I think if there is vaccination activity in Mexico, I mean, it's practically nil. Um, and, and we've got tons of Americans who are living and working in Canada and Mexico. I think Mexico is our largest uh, expat uh, population, isn't it? That's my understanding. A lot of retirees as well down in Mexico. Uh, and you're right. You can't assume that everybody can just easily go back and forth and come and go. It, it just is, I think, a naive assumption that it's easy to do. Now, the State Department and the U.S. government takes the view that they've never had the obligation to provide medicines or vaccines to Americans overseas. But neither in, in our lives, Bruce, have we provided free vaccines to people in America, not since, not since smallpox, essentially, is my understanding. And so this is an extraordinary circumstance where you know, extraordinary things should be done. And, and protecting our own citizens overseas is one of those things that really should be done. So how do you react to, to the contradiction? I read this just uh, earlier this week that America has just purchased 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine to be used in foreign countries for the citizens of those countries. But the same vaccines aren't being offered to Americans living in those countries because those countries don't have any obligation to, to provide the vaccine to an American. What are your thoughts? I mean, this is just a, a horrible contradiction, don't you think? It really is. And I think even if one would say, OK, we're not going to send vaccines that are only to be used for Americans, one should at least say, OK, if we're going to give vaccines, Americans should have equal opportunity to receive them in those countries than in addition to foreign citizens or citizens of those countries. It may well be in many countries like it was in Thailand initially, you know, foreigners were told to wait at the back of the bus. And, you know, clearly if we're providing vaccines to other countries, I think portion of those should be reserved for Americans, but at the very least, it should be a requirement that Americans are able to be in the same line as the locals in that country that we're otherwise providing vaccines to. Mm -hmm. So you and, and Ambassador Brown uh, wrote uh, the column that we're currently discussing, uh, Michael. Has there been a reaction from the Biden administration? Has there been additional talk going on at HHS or in the State Department about potentially uh, changing the policy and, and allowing um, Americans living abroad to get the vaccine? I understand that there, there has been some interest in the Senate on this issue that is pushing it forward. I know there are communications from people in the Senate with Gail Smith, the head of the sort of COVID diplomacy uh, sort of office or, or whatever it's called. So it definitely has created some reactions. And I think there's some more people, maybe not in the White House, but outside in, in the Senate, in the House that understand this and believe it really is important to support Americans. And hopefully there can be some additional push on it. I think the more we can get people, you know, pushing on it and, and recognizing that it's a large issue, the, the more likely we'll be able to achieve something. And um, again, just trying to drill down on some facts, 
Um, the U.S. government has provided access, whether people want to get the vaccine or not is, is their decision, I guess, but they have provided access to U.S. armed forces serving abroad uh, to the vaccine, as well as State Department employees. That's correct. So the two groups of people, sort of all Americans working for the U.S. government outside of America are either under two umbrellas. They're either under the military or they're under the State Department through the embassies. The embassies control a lot of other agencies, but they're all sort of underneath that, you know, embassy. And so both of those organizations have provided vaccines to all of their outposts around the world. Uh, I know in the State Department, every consulate, every embassy has been provided vaccines for not only the Americans at that location, but also the locally employed staff at those locations. So, I mean, you have a situation in Thailand where I was living after being the ambassador and, you know, the, the local embassy, everybody got vaccinated, all the local staff got vaccinated, all my previous household staff and the residents got vaccinated, but I couldn't get vaccinated. Hmm. Um, Ambassador, we have a caller. Charles uh, has a question for Ambassador Michael DeSombre. Uh, Charles, go ahead. Ambassador DeSombre, thank you for taking the time to be on Bruce's excellent program. I have a question. I understand that if we're counselor employees, it's a duty and an obligation of the country to make sure that vaccinations are available to them. However, if an American expatriates themselves, if that's a word, and voluntarily leaves the country, how does that create any obligation for the country to provide vaccines for them? Good question, Charles. Thank you, Charles. I think one also needs to look different. So in that circumstance, clearly no longer part of the U.S. government. The government should have no obligation. But Americans living abroad are subject to the same responsibilities and obligations as Americans living within the country. We pay taxes. We're subject to the same restrictions, the same requirements in terms of you know what we can do, what we can't do. Same laws apply to us outside the U.S. as within the U.S. So you know, my point is that we should treat Americans the same in both locations. If we're providing free vaccines to America in America, we should provide vac- free vaccines to Americans outside of America. Um, so, uh, Michael, we've had worldwide pandemics. I know you're not a medical uh, professional, but how do you think the world was so unprepared for what happened this this time 15 months ago? And how do we rectify this for future worldwide medical emergencies? Any any thoughts there? It does seem the WHO system did not work the way it was supposed to. Uh, so, I mean, I think that needs to be fixed. I, I believe that, you know, President Trump's decision to withdraw from it and try to ensure that it was fixed before we entered into it or created a different organization was probably the way to go. Uh, I think fundamentally it really needs to be fixed so that this doesn't happen again. So your family are back. Everybody's back in America. Um, how, how does this health emergency which uh, which we've just experienced, or the prospect of future emergencies, influence your plans or or the plans of of other colleagues that you've had in business as well as uh, in in public service. How do you think this would influence them going forward uh, in terms of their desirability to be posted abroad? Now, that, that's a very good question, Bruce. And this, the whole travel restrictions, which in the U.S. now are going away, but again in Asia, are likely to be continuing for the rest of this year, if not in the next year. It definitely makes the notion of living overseas and assuming that you can easily travel from one country to the next, or you, you put your kids in boarding school in America and you go off and live in Singapore, 
and then you assume that you come home easily for Thanksgiving and Christmas and if they get sick or whatever else, it does make you wonder whether that's always going to be there. And so I think it's going to create a little bit more hesitancy on people, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, we've seen in the past that people do often have a short memory. So once we get through this and everything's back to normal, people may not worry about it anymore. But at least right now, it does make you wonder. Hmm. Um, so before we close, Michael, uh, in, in my study of, of U.S. Uh, uh, State Department representation in Thailand, I learned that Bill Donovan, Wild Bill Donovan, was once an ambassador to Thailand. Um, are there any... Are, are there any stories you've heard about him when he was ambassador to Thailand? Well, yes. I mean, he was uh, he was a very important ambassador, and uh, he had uh, which is the precursor of, of the CIA, and uh, that intelligence cooperation is one of the ground, you know, real fundamental aspects of the relationship with Thailand, and it started off very closely with him initially, and it's continued until this day. So it's a very important aspect of our strategic relationship. Uh, is what he created essentially, and and uh, it's very you know much indebted to him. And and looking back, my final question, Michael, and thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, sorry, we we've got some sound uh, uh, quality issues, uh, but when you're up in the wild woods, it's a little hard to to do uh, a, a bang up job. Michael, if you had it to do all over again, uh, would you would you again serve the United States government? Uh, either uh, as in the State Department or otherwise? Most definitely. It was truly the, the greatest honor of my life to, to serve as the ambassador to Thailand. I really came to be very honored to work with the very talented men and women of the State Department. There really are a lot of very good people working in government, and, and often they just need good leaders. And being able to lead them and really direct the policy in of Thailand was one of the greatest honors of my life. So I would be very, very honored to do something like that again. Marco Sambri, thanks for your service to our country. Thanks for coming on the show uh, today. And thanks for your personal uh, friendship. Uh, you've been a great friend and supporter. I wish you and your family a happy and peace-filled summer. Our country, uh, friends, is much better off for this man's service and, and his thoughtful leadership. And thanks all of you for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Um, Insiders were out of town. I hope you enjoyed today's chat with uh, Ambassador Michael DeSambri and Paris Denard from the RNC. Uh, when we return next week, we'll have another live show. The author of a brand new book, Mercury Rising. It's a book about the Cold War and our manned space program. Uh, it's a great read. Until next Saturday, Fred Wilkinson, this is Bruce Ash, thanking you all for joining us and wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So. Uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material what they're making bringing it back and so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them so i think that's really our niche market we'll sell whatever you need tucson iron and metal surplus call 209-1579 stop by the yard 701 east 36th street open monday through saturday What your country can do for you, 
ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. IMUSWilkinson.com. 777-1911. 777-1911.